Just in via star drive at Columbus Ada, it's the Digigas. Now please welcome two kids from a trailer park, and if that's what they think, then that's all they'll ever be, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. <laughs> Oh, Corey, who could possibly think so little of us that they would say such a horrible, cruel thing? That was sent in by John Lusty. Insert your own joke. Uh, he got one back on John. Johnny got one back on you, that Corey. Uh, so, uh, still, still, uh, yeah, let me guess. This week, you had, uh, you had a, uh, a, a metal guitarist. Heavy metal guitarist? Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm never going to be able to quit my job. It is never going to happen. 4.30 in the morning, starting next week. 4.30. Nice. In the morning. Yeah. Oh. I didn't even know there was a 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> I thought it was only an afternoon thing. It turns out there's a 4.30 well, in the morning. L- let's do this. Since that's about when I usually go to bed, uh, I'll, I'll wake you up. You I'll wait, give you a wake-up call. You, you go to bed at 4.30 in the morning? Actually, no, I don't. usually go to bed at about 2.30. Why is that? What are you doing? I'm writing. What are you writing? I'm writing, man. I'm, I'm checks. What are you writing? No, I'm I'm writing things. I'm working at suicide t- notes. What are you writing? Yeah, I'm writing it to You know, I got things. I got things. I write. So when do you wake up? Uh, seven. So you need five hours of sleep. Well, no, I need about ten, but I get five hours of sleep. Well, seven because you have a daughter. Yeah. And then when everyone goes to sleep, you're like, okay, and this is my time. This is my time. Yeah, that's when I watch films for film week and. Uh, you know, yeah, that's that's when that's when it happens. They they usually, you know, my, my wife, and my daughter go to bed about eight, and then from eight to about two, then I'm like I'm cranking it. I'm I'm writing things. Like I wrote a, I just wrote a blog for the uh, I've written a couple of blogs for the American Cinematheque this uh, these last couple of series. Oh, good. Yeah, did one on the uh, the Apu trilogy, which they're doing a, a series on, and you know, I, I, that is deeply meaningful to me. I love uh, I love me some Apu trilogy, so uh, I wrote a little appreciative blog on it. Now what's the latest on uh, uh, synagogues? What, is that, is that Wait, yeah, we're yeah, we're 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 what, almost there. What's holding? What's, few hold, tweaks, few what's tweaks. Holding, holding that up besides me? I am. I am. <laughs> am, I, am, am I holding we're, that we're, up? No, you're not holding that up. No, it's, you. I sent you a bio. You did. You sent me the bio. It was bio. very serious because I'll be unemployed yeah. soon, and yeah. I want to make gotcha. sure people know that I have credits. Got the bio. Got the uh, got all the photos. Got all the stuff. I'm just learning some of the ins and outs, and I actually have to build out the uh, for contributors. Have to. I'm I'm writing up a uh, sort of a guidelines so that people just don't feel like it's free-for-all. There have to be sort of guidelines for contributors to write reviews and all that kind of stuff. So now, why do find we find the time to do that. Now, why do we still have only four Twitter feeds? Isn't the idea that we were going to get her a little plug-in yes. that allowed us to like get like an- another yeah. four, then another four? Yeah. Because right now it's just Synagogues, Vanity Fair, Hollywood Reporter, and Lafka. Yeah, we'll get more. We need more than yeah, that. More than we, that. We, we can't do four. Yeah. You're saying that, but you'll, you'll never do it. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm setting the no, day aside. I, I, no, I, I thought she said, here's the plug-in, it's called Bling Bling, yeah, and yeah. go get it, and we, I, we'll I, go get it. Yeah, and they just updated it. I'll pay it. for it if you no, want I, to. No, I, I already bought it. I already oh, bought it. Yeah, okay. I bought it. It's, it's just that it's, uh, she needs to, I, I have to Does get it. Does she have it? Yeah, she has it, but they've updated it, and there's a whole thing. It's, I'll explain it to you later. It doesn't, uh, no reason to have to, you know, sh- air our dirty, our dirty uh, Captain Underpants with the, uh, with the listeners. That? that was last week. I know. Wasn't that funny? You like how I tied it back in? It's, no. I don't like that at all, as it turns out. 
All right. So let's see. We've got, uh, you know what? We have an interview again this week. Uh, more great Disney animation uh, coffee table bookness. Uh, this week we're going to be talking to uh, David Bossert, who wrote Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search Hi. for the Lost Disney Cartoons. Uh, this is an amazing, if you don't know Oswald, Oswald existed before Mickey Mouse. Oswald informs Mickey Mouse. And if you go to, ever go to California Adventure, the, uh, the other theme park that's adjacent to Disneyland, uh, the first thing you see when you walk in is a little gas station over on, the, uh, on your left side, which is where all the Oswald memorabilia is sold. It's, uh, it's pretty terrific. Oswald is really where it all begins. It's not, not Steamboat Willie. It's Oswald. It's all about Oswald. So, uh, in, Oswald in, Cobblepot? Oswald. So we're going to be talking to uh, David Bossert, who wrote Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney Cartoons, which is a fascinating story. Um, and meanwhile, we still have a lot of television left over from last week. We have a whole boatload of classic t uh, movies, uh, which is probably where we should start. Because right at the top, Mark Deer. Mark Kaiser, old buddy, old pal. <laughs> Mon Cherie. Mon Cherie, 1982. The I just watershed sci-fi year for that activated it all just, the J.J. Abramses it was, of the world. It wasn't all about 77 or 78. That, that all informed it. It wasn't even about Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1980, 81. No, all of that was lead-in. All of that was prologue. 82 is when it really just ignited, right? That's Blade when Runner? The, Oh my gosh! Tron? Blade Runner, Tron, Star Trek Two. Yeah, what else? Well, you're holding one of them in your pants. Et. That's right. Et. That's what my daughter used to call elephants, and before she was able to say it, it started with et, and then it became elephant, and then it became erisent, and then it became elephant. Finally, she didn't say effulent. No, she never said effulent. She said erisent and efficent, and she also said et. That was the first thing she would say is et. By the way, if if you're uh, if you're dyslexic, yeah, the Blu-ray we're talking about now is called T.E. Yes. <laughs> so now we're are, are we done with the bad joke? Yeah, we, we are. Say what it is. E.T. the extraterrestrial. And Steven Tron, Spielberg. Did we say Tron? We did say Tron. Okay. Uh, Road Warrior. Uh, was that year as well? Megaforce. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the uh, anyway, E.T. the extraterrestrial, the phenomenon of 1982. Uh, really was. It made $399 million. I don't know why they weren't able to engineer that last million. That thing, you know, it became the all-time highest-grossing film domestically in American history at $399 million. It's like I, I remember thinking, you, and it was $399 million and like 400000 It wasn't even a million they needed. It was like another 600000 And I kept thinking, Universal, could you not possibly, just for public relations, just for the, the, for the double-truck variety ad that brags about the $400 million mark, could you not figure out how to generate another, you know, six or seven hundred thousand dollars? Come on, seriously. Today, today they would literally four wall a theater. Yeah. They would have every Universal employee go see it. Yeah. Or, they, or you do what the Chinese do, and you just block buy those tickets anyway, on behalf of people. That's true. And, you, and then you say you got there. I mean, come on. China, you know what Chinese Chinese uh, film uh, film receipts are like are like football games. Like you know when they say like. Like they'll it'll be a, a stadium that seats eighty thousand people, and they'll say capacity crowd here at the Coliseum, and the place will be half empty. Yeah, 
<laughs> because their claim <laughs> because is that they bought the ticket but didn't show up. I guess that's the claim. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's the Chinese box office. Yeah, that is. Exactly. They just buy, uh, buy thousands of tickets. For millions. Millions. They buy millions of tickets. never show up. Yeah, because, because it's not whether or not the movie makes money. The government funds a lot of these things through its entities, and, it, and it's, a PR, it's a PR thing. You know, it's just like the whole point of a Transformers movie is to sell toys, not to make money. Well, the whole point of a lot of these Chinese movies is to promote a propaganda campaign. So it's it, it, it's basically a line item in the national, in your, in your state budget. And they're just buying tickets so that they can have propaganda advantage. It's although ridiculous. It, although it's funny how the, the, the bloom's off that rose now. Yeah. Because the Chinese government's pulling back now. Yeah. Wow. All I can tell you is the little lenticular here that shows them flying across the moon is pretty great. Love that. Yay. Love that. So this is uh, the 35th anniversary limited edition of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Uh, with a, this is it. This, I mean, this is it. This is the, the real deal. It's 4K plus a Blu-ray plus digital HD. So you get everything here. You get your ultraviolet, you got your regular Blu-ray, and you got your 4K, which is beyond beautiful. The, the, the detail on the 4K is just not to be believed. It, it's, it, it's movies like this where you really see the the grain in the film, where you really see the texture on E.T., where you you actually, you know, on, on the minus side, you you see all of the rotoscoping and the and the, you know, you can see the lines in perfect detail wherever there's compositing. All of that really manifests itself. And it's cool. You know, I like being able to see some of the seams and uh, the the retro quality of, of older special effects. I appreciate that. All that and, matters is are the cops holding walkie talkies or guns. 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 The end. Yeah. Got you it. need to know. That's all you got to know. Uh, and it, it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, I love this movie. This was the first movie that I cried at. I actually, yeah, it was the first time I cried in a movie, and it just, it, it tore my heart out, and I felt like, okay, now, that I'm, last a, shot, by the now way, I'm a grown-up. That last shot still gets you. It does. I, I rewatched this a co- uh, about a year ago. And uh, that last, sh- and I'm looking at it, going, okay, this is kind of a fun family film, you know, okay, oh, it holds up mostly, but that last shot gets you right here. It does. It is. It is just so perfect, and uh, tons and tons of bonus features, hours and hours of them, the featurettes and the, uh, you know, all the stuff that you've seen before, the 20th anniversary premiere and stuff on the designs and the marketing, and uh, it, it's you know, this is all stuff that has been around forever, but it's great. The ET journals are wonderful. It's it, it just it's all absolutely spectacular and really well worth having. What I would love personally is a new feature-length commentary with Steven Spielberg looking back in perspective 35 years later. That's what I would like. Um, don't get that, but I would like it, and I would hope that he would do that one day. Not the kind of thing that he really does, but... Uh, That's like asking Woody Allen. To I know, I know. Commentary. But in any case, that would be nice. Someday, maybe, perhaps, keep him around long enough. Uh, you also get the uh, CD soundtrack on here, by the way. That's a, a, a collectible book. So, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff here. This is a, this is a perfect set to have. Uh, and the 4K, man. I mean, the, you know, if you're if you're trying on the fence about whether or not there's enough really quality 4K material out there, damn it, get this. This is, you know, this. If you if you have a 4K setup and you don't have ET on 4K, then there's no reason why you even have a 4K TV. Well, but no one. Yes. However, do you want to populate your 4K TV screen with movies that are, you know, 40 years old? Yes. 35 years old. Yes. 50 years old. 60 years old. Yes, yes. <laughs> you want, although you know what, if someone were to do like like the most the kick- great train robbery, the original one, exactly the black and white silent. Although Metropolis in 4K, <sighs> that would be cool. <sighs> yes, that's what I'm talking about. What was that yeah. noise? That noise? That was my Apple Watch. We were just talking. Whoa! Yes. What is that? Yeah, uh, that's the New York Times. 
Uh, don't say you, it. Do you want me, want me no, to read this to you? I don't. Want I me don't. to read my New York no, Times story no, off my I Apple don't. Watch to you? The New York, I, I, Mark and I were talking about this. The only reason I got this thing, I, the only reason I'm wearing it today is just I happen to have it on. I usually wear this just to go running. Uh, let's see New York Times. The nun with a chainsaw, the shoot at the hurricane. What, I, don't, I don't know what this is. It's a great podcasting moment, folks, and you're yeah. experiencing it right now. Okay, it's not right, a good What story. are we doing? Okay, moving on. So uh, let's yes. see. Yes. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> this <on>. is awesome. <laughs> now, can you. Now, here's the thing. You're do such we, a goof. Do we do we hate hate do we love hate this movie or hate hate this movie? I I kind of hate this movie, but but a lot of people don't. So whatever. So, um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> is uh, from 1978, and uh, I, and I'd like to like this movie. I I really there there are all kinds of reasons that I have why I feel like I should like this movie, but I I can't I can't I just can't. So uh, the movie is uh, based on uh, the Beatles, obviously. Sgt. Pepper's London Hearts Club Band, probably the greatest rock and roll album of all time, and also their Abbey Road. So this is um, this has nothing to do with the Beatles. However, it does have to do with Robert Stigwood, who at the time was the man. Was the man? Yeah. Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. This thing. He was the man. He, he was, was the man. musical man. He was. He was the, like the modern urban musical man. Yeah. That was his thing. And so this thing starred Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees. It's kind of like a rock opera. I guess you can say it's like yeah, a rock opera. Yeah, it is. Where the song is kind of, where like the, the lyrics of the songs and the dialogue that are, that sung move the but it's a story mess. around. The thing is um, basically a mess. However, man, you just cannot. This thing was all-star beyond all-star. I mean, everybody from Peter Allen and Keith Carradine and Etta James was in this, Nona Hendricks, Hart. I yeah. mean, everybody was, Bonnie Raitt was, it was in this just thing. Too, it was too, well, Stigwood was, call, you know, Stigwood was a music guy, right? I mean, he, uh, that, that, that's his, those were his origins. And he just called in every favor and called in every cameo imaginable. But and, it's just, it was, it was it, but it's just so mindless and confusing. And, it is. And just, it just, it, 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 it's, what's just the story? Bloated. What's the idea? I don't know. It's just a, just a big, big mess. And yeah, the thing is, it wound, up, mess. it wound up being a really embarrassing mess that wound up in some circles being kind of endearing for its messiness. Yeah. Um, I mean, it really is just a silly, silly movie, a very high camp kind of a film, but it's, you know what? I mean, I have not watched this Blu-ray, but I would watch this. The thing is that would I watch it and then after 15 minutes go, you know what? This thing really does suck. Or yeah. would I watch it and just just love the nostalgia? It's uh, I, I guess there's a nostalgia factor to it. Look, everybody knows I love the BGS. I mean, I love the BGS, and I you know I have some fondness for Peter Frampton as well. But I just I do remember watching this at the time and thinking, huh? It just didn't. Uh, it just felt like a like like somewhere. Between the meeting where everybody said, oh, that is an awesome idea, and that premiere screening, something went really badly wrong. And and what, what winds up on the screen, you just know, could not possibly have been what excited everybody in a meeting eight, nine, ten months earlier. It just didn't... Well, part of it, too, is Michael Schultz, the guy who directed this thing. Michael Schultz is a very good director, though. I mean, yeah, okay, look. Car yeah. Wash. I mean, Car Wash yeah, is a but, great movie. Yeah, but is it Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? You want it to be like yeah. a big epic thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's not, It's not. I don't think Michael Schultz is necessarily the problem. Uh, I mean, everybody involved in this is, look, Stigwood's a sharp guy. George Martin, who did the, uh, the, the music. Michael Schultz. These are all quality people from the era. Uh, Henry Edwards, who wrote it, I don't really know what his deal is, but... It just conceptually, the whole thing kind of goes south somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, 
Uh, Sergeant Pepper, Lonely, uh, Lonely Hearts Club Band from Shout Factory. Uh, Shout will dig up the kitsch, man. They they go there. Uh, so you know, can't can't take that away from them. Okay, we got a uh, we got a rapturous bunch of stuff from Kino this week. Kino Lorber and their uh, Studio Classics line. Keep keep just bringing out the stuff the studios will not. And I'll be honest, I think this is this is one of the best weeks that they have had in a very very long time. Uh, the late, wonderful Jerry Lewis, who left us just a few weeks ago, uh, stars in Visit to a Small Planet. This is uh, one of his lesser titles that is not often talked about, and I think it's really underrated. This is a very, very funny film, directed by Norman Tarag, who is one of the great, uh, you know, s- good stalwart comedy directors of the day, worked incredibly well with Jerry Lewis. They did a number of films together. Uh, this was made in 1960, and uh, it's, it's some of the funniest stuff that Jerry's ever done. Uh, what is not often known about this is this is based on a play by Gore Vidal. Did you know that? Uh, which, 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 visit to a visit to a small planet. That I did not know. It's based on a play by Gore Vidal. And I love Gore Vidal, and, and I did not know that. And say now, now if you say to people, how would you like to see Jerry Lewis in in uh, do Gore Vidal? No, but Gore Vidal was funny. Yeah, he was a funny writer. Oh, he was. But that's not often realized that that a Jerry Lewis movie was based on Gore Vidal source material. You, you, you would not put those two together. No, you wouldn't. But uh, but it works here, uh, especially the way that the the script is adapted. It uh, it really really tunes it to to Jerry, and it's insanely funny. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 the closest to science fiction that Jerry ever did. And uh, he played, you know, he's basically an alien visiting the Earth. As long as we're on talking about ET and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's uh, it's just fish out of water stuff done Jerry Lewis style, and it is so unbelievably funny. It is so riotously hysterical. The gags are first rate, and this is just such a fun movie. Uh, Visit to a Small Planet, absolutely first rate. Also, one of the best films that uh, Walter Hill ever did is The Long Riders. Now, Walter Hill understood that there was value to connecting the uh, real-life casting and, and historical casting, and so that in a way that it wouldn't look like stunt casting. And because he's dealing with the James and the younger gangs, uh, Jesse James and Frank James and the younger brothers, uh, he decided to cast real-life pairs of brothers in this. And so David Carradine, Keith Carradine, and Robert Carradine, along with James and Stacy Keach, Dennis and Randy Quaid, and Christopher and Nicholas Guest. Now, that's... This is the only time that you have had four teams of brothers in a movie together. Oh my god! <laughs> I know that, that I, I, at the time that was a big deal. It was a big deal. You know, because you because I, I remember like the posters, like they're, yeah. they're all on the horse, yeah. right? They're riding towards camera. Yeah. Like wow, all those there brothers. It that, there it is. That shot. How how they do that? Yeah, and uh, it's really smart. Walter Hill was a was a really aggressive director at the time. Had some very interesting ideas and. Uh, uh, from 1980, this is a this is a really really sharp movie done with a brand new 4K restoration, uh, transferred to Blu-ray, and uh, it's not the best telling of that story, but it is certainly one of the most interesting. And um, it, there's you know a lot of interesting extras here. Uh, Walter Hill plays pays homage to Sam Peckinpah, who certainly was an inspiration for the way that this film was made. And you know there's a 61 minute uh, making of feature on here, which is not even a featurette; it's like a mini documentary, mini feature documentary. Um, the Northfield, Minnesota raid, Anatomy of a Scene, which is really really interesting. Uh, so a lot of terrific extras. This is one of the best things that Kino Lorber has done in uh, in quite some time in terms of the extras. And uh, you know, Long Riders, one of the classic movies of the '80s. Can't uh, can't complain. Funny Bones, Mark. You remember Funny Bones? I do. Wasn't that great? No. No. Wasn't you didn't it? like Funny Bones? Let me see that. Give me that. I thought Funny Bones was funny. 
Uh, when was this? I thought Funny Bones was awesome. Maybe oh. I don't remember this. You don't remember? See, you're confusing it with something else. You're confusing with the uh, with the Bogdanovich. Uh, uh, yeah, don't, <coughs> you're right. I don't remember yeah, this one. Yeah. Uh, no, funny. Uh, so Funny Bones, directed by Peter Chelsom, who went nowhere from 1995. Uh, Peter Chelsom co-wrote this and directed it, and it is uh, a quite a funny, wacky, farcical comedy with a very, very funny collection of uh, talented actors. Uh, the cast includes uh, Oliver Platt, Lee Evans, who's gone on to do next to nothing after Mouse Hunt. I don't know what happened there. Uh, Oliver Reed, Leslie Caron, and once again. Jerry Lewis. Yay! Uh, of course, Jerry Lewis is very much uh, part of the uh, the sort of the, the ensemble here. He's not really standing out. It's nice to see an aging Leslie Caron unafraid to really do something much lighter and uh, more less self serious than what she had done in the past. So, uh, really, it's it's uh, it's 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 a very very good ensemble. And um, Oliver Platt playing Jerry Lewis's son is one of the funniest things that I've ever seen. Uh, it's a it's a really great gag filled ensemble piece, and you should check it out. Um, Peter Chelsom, I wish he had had better career, but uh, Funny Bones with Oliver Platt, Lee Evans, Oliver Reed, Leslie Caron, and Jerry Lewis, really quite a fun movie from 1995. Also from Kino Lorber, Love with a Proper Stranger, Natalie Wood and Steve McQueen. Uh, I am a Natalie Wood fanatic. Anybody who knows me knows that, so I am uh, not qualified to say anything critical about this. From 1963, directed by the great Robert Mulligan. And uh, this is the film, by the way, that introduced Tom Bosley. This was his first movie. Isn't that wild? <laughs> Tom, Tom Bosley. Wow, that introduced the world <laughs> to Tom Bosley. It was incredible. A what a uh, landmark film. Uh, you know what? what a hey, time capsule. Uh, produced by Alan Pakula. Uh, it's, a, it's just a great movie. <laughs> Love with a Proper Stranger, one of the best performances that Natalie Wood ever gave on screen. Her chemistry with Steve McQueen is just tremendous. Was I with you when I, when, when I was, uh, uh, maybe it was Phil, I was sitting on a Train, this is a couple of years. It, it would not have been you sitting on a train a couple of years ago, and uh, we could have sworn that we saw a guy across the aisle who was Tom Bosley. It was before oh, yeah, died. yeah, was that you? Yeah, I think so. What were we doing? That, that sounds familiar. And then, so we're looking know. at this guy going, Hey, I think that's Tom Bosley. Is Tom Bosley dead? I don't know. And then, so it was like, Who's gonna yell Tom? <laughs> to see if he turns around. <laughs> it's like the only way to know. This sounds really from either you, either I was there or you've told me the story with such vivacity that I feel as though I was there. It must be a train because uh, otherwise it wouldn't yeah. be a bus. Maybe it's a bus. I don't know. But anyway, so somebody yelled uh, Tom to see if he would turn around. <laughs> Didn't. And then when he turned around, okay. we realized that a not only is that not him, but b he's dead. Okay. So that's well, my Tom Bosley. I think you may have told. I think you may. I think you may have told me with, with uh, that where I feel like now. I feel like I was there. I, anyway. So, Love with a Proper Stranger, one of the one of the more uh, mainstream films, one of the bigger mainstream films to deal with uh, um, unplanned pregnancy and a lot of these, you know, sort of really pressing issues that were not sort of talked about in movies in 1963. But Natalie Wood is amazing. Steve McQueen, jazz musician, all of the family and pregnancy and religious issues in this I movie. Love it's Natalie it's Wood. great. It's terrific. My father had a huge crush on Natalie Wood. I had a huge. crush. I still do. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is that I thought she Man. was so at the time I was a kid. I, I did. I, I, my dad said he had a crush on her, and I would look at her, and I would acknowledge that she was very pretty. But I'd be like, "Yeah, but she's forty-two years old." Oh, it's the best. Whatever it was. Now it's like I would date a forty-two-year-old totally. in a second. Heartbeat. Yeah, right. And I was like, twenty. I'm like forty-two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Good me. And uh, Harold Pinter's amazing 1958 play, The Birthday Party, uh, was filmed as a movie in 1968. Ten years later. 
and by William Friedkin. And it's not William Friedkin's best-known movie because he didn't really kind of become a thing. Friedkin was on his way up, but it wasn't until The French Connection and uh, The Exorcist that he really became the man. So in the years before that, he was making still some pretty great movies. And uh, The Birthday Party is a really, really tough play. And it makes it for a very, very tough movie. And Friedkin is really showing his, uh, his stuff here. Great cast. Robert Shaw, Patrick McGee, uh, Dandy Nichols. It's a really, really solid movie. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen it, it's really, really worth checking out. Um, powerful, powerful stuff. I, I would compare it a little bit to uh, 12 Angry Men in some respects, a little bit to Glengarry Glen Ross. It has some of those same qualities. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, it, it takes place in a boarding house in England and uh, uh, where, where a, there's a conversation, there's a, there's a discussion going on that, that sort of spirals out of control in a very, very powerful way. Uh, Pinter really just did some of his best work here, and Friedkin just gives it such a great cinematic treatment. And Robert Shaw, absolutely just uh, amazing. So they, that is The Birthday Party from uh, 1968. And then lastly, from the Kino Lorber set this week, is uh, Adventures of Captain Marvel. And this is uh, significant because you will never see this hero referred to as Captain Marvel ever again. These are, uh, this is a, a serial from 1941 where the, uh, the hero known as Captain Marvel, who, would, uh, who is now known as just Shazam, and who was featured in a Saturday morning uh, cartoon, the Shazam and Isis Hour, uh, back when I was growing up, um, they made a serial back then, just like they did for Superman and Batman and all the other heroes of the day. And it's, uh, you know, it's a little cheesy, and it's, uh, it's, it's got all the qualities of the serials. They're all shot very quickly and uh, with, without a lot of coverage and in a very, very rough and, and tumble way. Um, and, you know, it's, it's about four hours worth of, of these episodes. And uh, here's what's important to remember. These are, this is a Republic serial that was drawn from the Whiz Comics. Whiz Comics was eventually acquired by DC, which then folded Captain Marvel in with all the other DC comic characters, which lasted right up until, I think it was the late 80s, when there was a lawsuit between Marvel Comics and DC. And Marvel sued DC over the name of Captain Marvel because they had their own Captain Marvel, who would eventually then, uh, the mantle of their Captain Marvel would eventually be assumed by a woman, and they are doing that as a feature film now. And they didn't want DC having a character called Captain Marvel. They felt it was a confusing uh, uh, association of trademark. And uh, they won the lawsuit. So DC had to change the name of Captain Marvel to Shazam, which apparently is also going to be a film now. However, uh, everything prior to that lawsuit is still allowed to be called Captain Marvel. And so here, this is you still get the adventures of Captain Marvel. And because we keep it real on this show, it looks like Mark just got a very special call. A call that may mean finally leasing his place. So while Mark is gone, I'm going to uh, go through another great selection of movies that we have this week. Uh, new Blu-rays from Twilight Time. Twilight Time, you can find all of the titles at twilighttimemovies.com. They all come with isolated music tracks. They are like the uh, like a lot of these uh, a lot of these smaller companies. They do licensing deals with the studios, and uh, they find great stuff primarily from 20th Century Fox, MGM, and uh, and Columbia, uh, part of the Sony Library. Now, uh, the five films this month are all really really interesting. It's a great collection of movies, starting with their ongoing set of uh, Woody Allen titles. September, uh, September is one of the uh, one of the very um, 
the Bergman-esque Woody Allen dramas, not intended to be funny, intended to be very, very serious, and very evocative of Bergman. In this case, uh, Autumn's Sonata is the, uh, the Bergman film that he is most trying to evoke, the idea of sisterhood and uh, female characters in a, in a very small, claustrophobic environment. It looks a lot like Autumn Sonata. It feels a lot of, like Autumn Sonata, and just the name September is meant to evoke the idea of, of Autumn. So it is, uh, it is one of his great tributes to Bergman, who Woody Allen has long said was his, his, his great inspiration. And it, is, uh, it's a, it was criticized at the time for being a little too self-serious, uh, because people wanted Woody to be funny. They at least wanted him to be uh, smart funny. They didn't want him to be this self-serious. They didn't really want to crawl into this part of his brain. And so I think it was overly criticized at the time. When you go back to it and uh, you revisit it now, it's a much more impressive film. Uh, with a little bit of distance, you look at the performances from Diane Weist and Mia Farrow, Elaine Stritch, uh, and of course, you know, Jack Warden and Sam Waterston in the, uh, holding down the, uh, the male end of the story. Uh, it's a it's still really great Woody Allen from one of his most prolific and interesting periods, and uh, it's uh, you know it it gets inside human relationships in a in a very very chillingly honest way that uh, many of Woody's other films don't necessarily do, and it stands apart from some of his other films as a result. So uh, really a, a beautiful film, beautifully photographed and designed. Santo Locasto did the. Uh, the production design, Carla De Palma did the uh, cinematography. It's, a, it's really just a superb film. Uh, and the isolated music track makes it all better. Uh, Lawman with Burt Lancaster, Robert Ryan, and Lee J. Cobb. Pretty terrific Western. Mark is now back. Mark, how did that go? Oh, it was not... Um, it was not for you. It was not the real estate. Oh, it was not the real estate. somebody who... I see. It was a friend of mine who lives in uh, New Jersey. Yes. Who has a condo, mm -hmm. and she rents it out to people all the time. Oh, okay. So I kind of wanted to get her take on the piano situation. Is I that see. a deal breaker? Should I be panicking? And she said no. She said conditionally no. Good. Obviously, if she's Billy Joel at five in the morning for three hours, that's, <laughs> but just don't worry about it. I, 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 what, what's killing me is that I normally I would tell this piano woman go to hell. Yeah. But you need this to happen. Yes, but also. I thought there'd be more activity for my place. Like, yeah. I thought there'd be more showings, more calls, yeah. more interest, where I can say, who needs this woman? I got five other people on the hook. Yeah. Where she's kind of all I got. Yeah. So that kind of makes you want to well. investigate her more. Hmm. But I might be taking another call soon. All right. My, my girlfriend's going to call from Paris. I Here's know. the thing. When Mike, it's nine hours okay. ahead yeah. from Los Angeles to Paris. Yes. So there's a small window. Yeah. Right? In which we can speak. Yeah. It's like, like it's like if she's going to Mars and there's a small window where the, 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 the asteroid zone doesn't interfere with the, the transmission zone. or okay, whatever. Thank you. So I believe that the window is opening in a few minutes, in which okay. case I will be taking my leave All again. Right. Well, I'm just rolling through the Twilight Times right now. Uh, Michael Winner of uh, Death Wish fame directed uh, The Very Fine Lawman in 1971, right at the tail end of the Western movie era, which really kind of wraps up by about 1972. And, uh, you know, this is just a good, solid, uh, classic Western sheriff tale. Burt Lancaster plays the sheriff, and uh, Lee J. Cobb plays the, the, uh, the, the rancher who, you know, accidentally kills a guy. And uh, you got Robert Duvall and Robert Ryan. 
it's it's all it's all you know good solid crusty western stuff and michael winter handles it very very uh, expertly and uh, it's worth checking out that's lawman and then also on the western front hour the gun which is one of the best okay corral movies of all time i think it's maybe even i don't know tombstone you think tombstone is still the best tombstone is the best you think it's the one that feels the most uh, authentic and it seems to be the best researched because Hour of the Gun is awfully... Well, okay, let me... let me. Not My Darling Clementine. No, not My Darling Clementine. But I was going to say the uh, the Star Trek episode, Hour of the Gun. Which I like. That's actually one of my favorites. Yeah, but that's not... Yeah. I, I don't... I'm not looking at that for historical accuracy. Yeah. But uh, that is... That, wait, that... No, the move, this, this, this is Hour of the Gun. But the Star Trek episode is... Spectre of the Gun. Spectre of the Gun. Thank you. Spectre of the Gun. That's and why right. do I know that? Zling nerd. Little nerd. Zling nerd. Okay, so anyway, Hour of the Gun with James Garner, Jason Robards, and Robert Ryan again is, uh, is pretty great. Uh, it's, uh, this was done by the Mirish Company at the time, who mostly did a lot of Billy Wilder movies. And uh, they were kind of the original, uh, the Mirish Brothers were the original independent production group in Hollywood. And uh, they put this together beautifully, directed by John Sturges, of the, uh, the, the, who, who had previously made the, uh, the Great Escape, right? Yes. John Sturges, Great Escape. Right. And a uh, really expert director, wonderful score by Jerry Goldsmith, kind of really getting his, his groove on right in the late 60s. That's when he was on, in The Ascent. And uh, it's, it's it, you know, I think it's right up there. It's one of the best OK Corral movies. It really uh, it feels honest. It, it's tough. Uh, it's terrific. I really enjoyed it. So Sturgis, by, you know, Sturgis, although uh, he also directed Magnificent Seven. That's right. Yeah. yeah, he had a good career. He was yeah. kind of one of those guys that did a lot of good, like a little better than journeyman work. Yeah, he was a journeyman guy who did better than journeyman work. He's terrific. He's a good guy. And then uh, Gun Fury 3D. This was a this is a really kind of a strange one. Directed by Raoul Walsh, who's another one of those guys, those journeyman, those just slightly better than journeyman guys. Uh, from 1953, that first big 3D wave, and this was a 3D Western uh, that uh, kind of sort of works. It doesn't need to be 3D, but uh, it's got a great cast. Rock Hudson, Donna Reed, um, Phil Carey. And, you know, it's, a, it's an okay story. It's a, kind of a standard revenge Western, and, uh, you know, it all, takes, it all kind of begins from a stagecoach robbery and, and, and goes south from there. Um, but it, it, you know, I mean, it's not great. The 3D is is an interesting thing. It's kind of more a novelty than anything else. And then the last uh, Twilight Time title is a is a real. I think we would call this a curio. Uh, at least that's what the trades usually refer to these things as. Um, from 1953, Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef. This was was a very early widescreen effort, uh, cinemascope kind of tryout. And it's, it's not a very good movie by any measure. Uh, Robert Wagner was not a good actor in his first few years, uh, especially in things like, uh, what was the, what was the, the, the Prince, uh, uh, what, what's the comic, the comic strip that... Uh, Robert Wagner? Robert Wagner, Prince, not Prince Charming. Prince, Prince Valiant? Prince Valiant. He was Prince Valiant with that horrible bob haircut. That was just really Well, you can't have Prince Valiant without the horrible bob hair. Oh, my word. Anyway, but, but now you're talking the mid-50s, though. Yeah. When he so was first starting. When he was first starting, he's just not a very good actor. And uh, he's just a pretty face. And he eventually becomes a better actor. He ages into it he, in, a, in a much more serious way. But um, Harry Carey Jr., Gloria Gordon, uh, Jane Novella, Peter Graves. Great supporting cast here. But what a strange... What a strange movie. This is He's still around by the way, Robert Wagner. Oh, I know he is. Yeah. By RJ. Way, Everyone he... refers to him as RJ. 
Uh, you know why? Still. He, and he was married to Natalie Wood. I know. Aren't you know. jealous? Yeah. He went there. Twice. That's right. Twice. They're married, divorced, then married again, and then everything went really south. Uh, but anyway, this is... Uh, he killed her. So this, this, this was nominated for an Oscar for its, cinema, uh, its Cinemascope cinematography. And uh, that's kind of all it really has going for it. It's uh, about sponge diving. And there's a romance. <laughs> you mean sponges like that you yeah you clean your yeah. pots and pans? Yeah, sponge diving. And, and there's a romance that doesn't really work. And there's not really much, of, much to it. But there's a featurette on Robert Wagner, an isolated score, and some beautiful photography. But otherwise, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's like an underwater adventure movie about sponge diving, which is very strange, just to show off. Like, they wanted something to show off cinemascope cinematography. And they thought, oh, I know. How about diving? What, what could they dive for? I don't know. Sponges? And that was the end of the development meeting. So there it is. Uh, wait, I have a couple movies to talk about. Yes, sir. Before my girlfriend calls and the, and the window opens. We have um, The Moderns. Now, here's the thing with The Moderns. The Moderns was directed by Alan Rudolph, who was one of those guys from the 70s and early, like a John Salesy type guy from yep. the 70s and 80s, who did a lot of highly respected indie stuff that nobody went to see. Yep. But they got great casts, and uh, he definitely has his fans. He's a... Uh, he was, a, he was an Altman acolyte. He was an Altman guy. Yeah. Um, this one, I actually like it because it's a... And I remember liking this at the time because it's a, it takes place in Paris in the mid-20s. And Keith Carradine plays this expatriate American. He's living in Paris. And he's whooping it up with all the great writers that lived in Paris at the time, including uh, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and Alex, uh, Alice B. Uh, Toklas. And they're all represented in the film. And I sort of liked it from that... Perspective. Um, I liked. I liked the. Um, I liked the Paris locations. I like Rudolph's. Um, he directed all. Uh, he wrote most of his stuff, not all of his stuff. And he was. I would say even. A he was a better writer than a director. I think. Very evocative characters. Um, so I like this movie, um, The Moderns. The Blu-ray uh, contains new interviews with Alan Rudolph and uh, the producer and Keith Carradine, who's obviously very old right now. And uh, yeah, so it's it's a remastered from 2K, so whatever 2K. But I'm glad it's out on um, Blu-ray. The moderns. We also have um, Suspect. Here's the thing with Suspect. Suspect was from 19. I'm gonna say 87. 1987. Yeah. And it stars Cher right. and Dennis Quaid, and it's about the uh, murder of a Washington uh, legal secretary. Now, in the this was when Cher was doing her her momentary acting thing. I know it's weird. I know yeah, she, right? it's it's hard to believe that Cher was like an Oscar, a regular a regular Oscar nominee yeah. and one time winner. Yes. In the 80s, How she just happened? but it, you know it happened with Silkwood. With the Silkwood, so she shows up in a movie, and everybody was like, "Really, Cher? Isn't she like you know she sparkles and cheesy TV and has been sunny ex wife?" And suddenly she's in Silkwood and she's great, and everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, Cher!" And next thing you know, she's she's doing Blue movies like every and uh, yeah, and she's and winning Oscars and she's great and she's terrific. Yeah, it was amazing midlife change. And now she's a freak. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so the movie uh, there's a murder of a Washington legal secretary. The only suspect is this is this homeless guy, um, who she thinks is innocent. So if he's innocent, who really did it? I remember this movie because it had Cher, who was kind of attractive at the time, and Dennis Quaid, who I always liked. It also had a crazy. I didn't like the ending. I felt like the like the like. Yeah, I, it, I won't tell you, but the, the the person who wound up doing it is like okay. I know that's, that, that was from? that's the slam on the movie is that they they <laughs> sort of. <laughs> they, were, they they painted themselves into a corner at the end and just threw up. They, they just shrugged and said, "All right, okay, fine." But it was directed by Peter Yates. Speaking of um, 
Speaking of journeyman oh, directors. Crawl. Yes. The best movie he ever made. And by the way, well, he also did Breaking Away. Yeah, I know. Also, and I'm just going to say something. <laughs> and The I'm, Dresser. I'm, I'm, he did The Dresser. Albert Finney, love that movie. Same year as Crawl. Go by on. the way, putting this out there, Bullet. I rewatched Bullet a couple years ago. Yeah. Nate's did that too. Yeah. Boring. See, I love Bullet. Well, I boring. St- no, really? if, if you watch that t- today, boring. Really? Yes. Because uh. everybody remembers The Chase. Right? And no one remembers anything else. E- everything else is these slow tracking okay. shots, <laughs> these boring conversations, and, they get, and then there's a chase. Yeah. And then there's like more boring conversations <laughs> and long, slow tracking shots. And like, okay. Oh, look, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, over the shoulder. This is exciting. So, uh, flicker. Fl- want me to do that? Okay, you go ahead and do that. More. Hit that, hit that. Wade, why are you denying me the uh, pleasure of talking about The Man with Two Brains? Do it. I, I love this movie. Now, I s- did you see the documentary about the, about the uh, uh, um, If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast? The what's a huh? If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast or something like that? No, that? no. The documentary about classic Hollywood figures, mostly yeah. comedians, who yeah. are still alive well into their 90s. Okay. It was a documentary that included Dick Van Dyke, Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner. Wow. It's really good. It's okay. very, it, and, and it's not just one of those like, you know, pro old people things. Yeah. You realize everything these guys have gone through, everything they've survived, the fact yeah. that the reason why they're still thriving at that age is because they're just young at heart. Yeah. They're always young. Dick Van Dyke's still dancing. I know. Mel Brooks can still tell a story. Yeah. And uh, Carl Reiner is one of those guys. And if you take a look at Carl Reiner's filmography, you realize all the really funny films he directed. Yeah, you know, and the man with two brains is one of them. It's great. It's sort of like a Frankenstein riff, and it stars Steve Martin. And do you remember in this movie? Do you remember? Now this is when Kathleen Turner was was a hottie, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you remember the kiss that Kathleen Turner gave Steve Martin in uh, this movie? Vague. Yes, I do. She now that you shoves, mentioned it, and, and it, was yes. side, it was it was it was a side gag. That yeah. was the idea. That was yeah. a joke. She. Shoves her mf and tongue <laughs> right into his goddamn mf and mouth to the point where you're like, oh my god, I hope that was one take, because it was really, really disgusting. <laughs> but they just, I'm so sure Carl was like, you know what, man, if you do this right, we just have to do it once, and it was just one of the great, it was one of the great uncomfortable, hilarious screen kisses. Did you ever see Carl Reiner dancing on the Tonight Show? I did not. For with with Johnny. I did not. You you need to find that. I. I'm not even sure if that video is on YouTube or anything, but there was a, it was one of his last appearances when, uh, I believe it was with Johnny, but it was it was insanely funny. He came out and he he was he just did this, it was like 45 seconds of of dancing that wasn't even good dancing. It was just spastic dancing, but it was insanely funny. Um, well, anyway, should, this is a, this is a good solid comedy. I mean, it's not yeah. like Blazing Saddles or Airplane Hilarious, but this is a good solid fun comedy. I, I dare you to watch this and not laugh. Warner Archive, Blu-ray, yep. beautiful. I uh, got three really great collector sets here. Uh, a couple of them from the uh, the people at Arrow and Arrow Academy, and then one from Flickr Alley. We're going to start with Flickr Alley. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, apart from writing the Sherlock Holmes novels, did write other things, which people oftentimes forget, one of which was The Lost World. And uh, The Lost World, which uh, is just really good, solid pulp, was made into a landmark silent film in 1925. And this is kind of the original Jurassic Park, really. Um, Harry O. Hoyt, H-O-Y-T, not like Irish O, but middle initial O, uh, did the film in 1925. And it wound up being part of uh, David Shepard's Blackhawk Films collection, which means that it is now a Blu-ray from Flickr Alley. 
And Flickr Alley has really uh, just gone full criterion on this. There's tons of stuff on here. There's a full audio commentary by Nicholas Ciccone, uh, who is a film historian, uh, talking about the, uh, the every reason to appreciate this film, which has now been 2K restored, and it is absolutely gorgeous. And uh, you also have uh, some deleted scenes, restored outtakes from the original nitrate transfer, which uh, is, like, extraordinary. And uh, the RFD 10,000 BC short film from 1917, directed by Willis O'Brien, for Thomas Edison, which is kind of the, uh, the precursor to this. And then uh, The Ghost of Slumber Mountain from 1918, which was a short film done by Will, uh, Willis O'Brien as well. Uh, really just a, a, an amazing bunch of stuff. So The Lost World, uh, in terms of special effects and uh, art direction and, and everything else, is just a, a landmark silent got to have it. It's on Blu-ray. Uh, it's another absolute must-include for your uh, silent classics collection. And uh, then from the, uh, the good people at Arrow, uh, we've got a couple here from uh, regular Arrow is the Mario Bava film Eric the Conqueror. That's Eric with a K, which is really great gladiator era, uh, you know, uh, sword and sorcerer, sword and sandal, uh, what else do we want to call this? Sword the the, uh, the Hercules era. Hercules era, really, you know, when the, uh, all the Italian guys were doing either spaghetti westerns or Hercules and, and sword and sandal epics. So cheesy. All cheesy. Be honest. But you know what? Eric the Conqueror is actually one of the best of them. Uh, Mario Bava, primarily known for his uh, uh, Giallo stuff, is really better at this kind of stuff. Uh, this is from 1961. And uh, they had, you know, Kirk Douglas had just made the Vikings a couple of years earlier, and uh, they wanted to do something more Viking-oriented than uh, their usual uh, kind of Roman and Greco-Roman stuff. So they kind of merged the two genres and uh, came up with Eric the Conqueror, which is cheesy, don't get me wrong. It's, it's silly and cheesy and very kitschy of the era, but um, it's still kind of, uh, it's got something to it. You sort of enjoy watching it because it's, it's retro and throwback and has a whole bunch of interesting extras on it as well. So uh, that's a nice set. And then this is one that, a uh, little bit more legit from Arrow Academy, is The Big Knife which features an amazing performance by uh, Shelley Winters, along with a, a staggering cast. I mean, Shelley Winters is sort of the standout here, but check it out. Jack Palance, Ida Lupino, Rod Steiger, and, of course, Gene Hagen from uh, Singing in the Rain. I can't stand him. We love Gene Hagen. Uh, the Big Knife is a terrific film noir, really fantastic. One of the best film noirs ever directed by Robert Aldrich, who specialized in film noirs. Uh, based on a Clifford Odets play of all things, and uh, it's just you know this was uh, this thing won the Venice Film Festival in 1955, and uh, it, it just it, it kills it. It's one of the best noirs ever made. It is an absolutely superb film, and uh, it's just one of the best adaptations of an Odette play ever. So there's no reason not to own this. Jack Palance is absolutely intense. Rod Steiger is intense. Uh, Shelley Winters steals the movie. It is, a, it is great. The, the Big Knife from Arrow Academy. Is Criterion Wade this week? Yeah. Festival by Murray Lerner. I'm thinking Murray Lerner might be uh, Jewish. Oh, yeah, probably. And I can say that because I, I think happen so. to be Jewish. I think so. Anyway, so um, the, this is a documentary and a very good one. Too short at uh, about 100 minutes, but it's still very good. This is all about um, the early to mid-60s, the Newport Folk Festival. 
This has nothing to do with Monterey Pop or Woodstock. This is the Newport Folk Festival, and this thing was, at the time, great. You had Howlin' Wolf, one of my favorite uh, blues singers. You had Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Johnny Cash, John Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary, who I loved as a kid, uh, all showing up at this uh, Newport Folk Festival. And Murray Lerner, a guy showed up, shot it, did a great job. It's in beautiful black and white. And the, what's more remarkable is the editing, because the, what he does is he gets the great performances, but he also gets interviews with the fans, interviews with the artists. He kind of puts it all together in these sort of prime years of the festival. And this is a great and worthy document of a festival that probably does never got the respect it deserved. And you can kind of check it out now on Criterion. It's called Festival uh, Folk Music at Newport, 1963 to 1966. Uh, 2K digital transfer, still looks great. There's a making of, which is good. Couple of um, featurettes, really good stuff. So Festival, if you love music and you're into Monterey Pop and you've already been through your Woodstock, you should definitely check out the great music in Festival. Speaking of Monterey Pop coming out on uh, Blu-ray on Criterion as well, you know, yeah. uh, that's, I, I wonder if I can go to Bob Adler and, and get him to, to talk about it. I should just like literally show call him up. Robert. I'll go up and show up at his door. He's at every Laker game. He's totally approachable. He lives five minutes from me. I could literally, I, I could just, I, I could drive to his front door right on PCH and knock on it and just go, Bob, you, I, you see me around town. You know, I'm, I'm at the market every once in a while. You want to talk about Monterey Pop? He does. He talks about it all the time. They screen oh. it up at like the park and he talks about it every year. It's all it's okay. a thing. What was your last celebrity sighting at the Gelson's on uh Oh my on goodness. PCH and uh, Yeah, in, 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 on Sunset. Uh, the last celebrity sighting I had there. It was Jeffrey Tambor. Oh, it was. It was it was Tambor. That's a funny story. That's a hysterical story, you know. Did you ever think you, I lo I forgot my my uh, my dough balls. It was hysterical. It was the funniest thing ever. Did you ever in your life think you'd say, hey, I forgot my dough balls, and turn around, it's just Jeffrey Tambor right behind me. Now, did you say, oh, my God, you're Jeffrey Tambor, or did you just laugh? I laughed. I just laughed hysterically. Okay, because otherwise, I would have said, oh, my gosh, do you remember when I interviewed you on the phone for The Grinch? I was that guy. I asked you stupid questions. You were so awesome and funny. Please tell me all about making the, the, the Ropers. I loved you on The Ropers. Oh. <laughs> Come on. No, I'm just going to turn bad. into a goopy fan. No, you got to worry about Mary um, uh, Sanders. Not, you see that, too. He's just, he's so iconic. How many great things has Jeffrey Tambor done? Oh. It's just, well, Transparent just reinvented him. It did. It's amazing. Right. Good for him. It just reinvented He can do anything. All right. Let's, uh, let's hit some TV here. Uh, we got a couple, of, a couple of great ones from Warner. And by great ones, I, I mean one is pretty good, and uh, the other one is really not good at all. Uh, so for, we have from the DC uh, television universe, the multiverse, is the fifth season of Arrow, the one that started it all. And incredibly, Arrow keeps being interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I prefer flat The Flash conceptually, but um, it, it started to get a little crazy with all the third season time tripping and back and forth and flipping around and, you know, characters changing identities. And, and it, it just, it got a little bit mad. Um, but Arrow kind of keeps it grounded. Uh, and Oliver Queen... He's, you know, not my favorite comic character, but somehow they took Green Arrow and turned him into something really interesting on television and uh, continues to be very, very interesting the way that they, uh, they developed this, this world crossing over with Flash and Heroes of Tomorrow, and um, it's good stuff. Uh, I got to say, the complete first season of Lethal Weapon, not so impressive. This is, uh, this is on Fox. Yawn. 
Yeah. You know, uh, but, you know, come on. If they had no, done this... Wayans Brothers playing... Uh, I know. Dan, Danny Glover Well, role. there's no reason... Look, it's not even the Danny Glover role. It, it's not... There's, there is, frankly, nothing that corresponds to the movies. Nothing feels like the movies here. It's just like they said, hey... Well, white what, guy, black guy. White guy, black guy, let's call it Lethal Weapon. That's all there is. There's it's nothing... It's intellectual property. It's it, IP. Yeah. See, Pre-sold. There you go. That's it. The the name recognition of the title, and they hope to get a little bit of juice okay. out of that. If, if it was called Streets of Los Angeles, you'd be like, oh, that sounds lame. Yeah. But, oh, Lethal Weapon, that's going to get... You know what? That'll get covered in the papers. There you go. You know, in, in the Indianapolis uh, Star Plane Dealer, you it's know, they, they'll cover it. Yeah. Because it's Lethal Weapon. If yeah. it was the streets of Los Angeles, they wouldn't care. Yeah. Unbelievable. Anyway. It's unbelievable. It's, not, it's, it's just not... It's not great. Uh, and I love Damon Wayans. I really do. I think he's great. But uh, he's not Roger Murtaugh. And this Clayne Crawford, he's Martin Riggs. It just doesn't... It, none of this makes it just doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, but you know the fact that McGee sold it, I guess that gives me some solace. No, it doesn't. You know no, why? It I, I like the fact that McGee, McGee sold it because if he's doing TV, he's not doing movies. <laughs> yeah, that's well. how it works. All right. So last week we talked about uh, a terrific uh, DVD set of Johnny Carson, old Johnny Carson shows. Now we have the Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, the Vault series. This is six uh, DVDs, a lot of great shows here. Twelve shows. Including commercials, yes. Including commercials, <laughs> the best. So this is uh, shows from the 10th and 11th years. We're talking 1976. Guests include Muhammad Ali, Jack Benny, Sean Connery. By the way, Sean Connery is kind of out and about. Uh, you go on the Daily Mail, and there's like shots of Sean Connery like doing stuff. I know. He's out. He's yeah. older, but he, I think he he's he's big into tennis. So I think he showed up to the British Open or the oh, London really? Open or the something Open, one of those stupid Open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he showed up. And uh, he's just still Sean Goddamn Connery. Also, John Denver. By the way, John Denver. Why is John Denver suddenly having a moment? John he's Denver. A, his movies are in everything. His uh, he was in. Uh, or his uh, songs he, are in everything. It was in Guardians of the Galaxy yeah, Two. Yeah. Uh, Alien. Uh, what? What's yeah. he doodle? Yeah. And there was something else also recently. Yeah. John Denver. I know. The guys having a moment. It's crazy. Yeah. Charlton Heston, Burt Reynolds, Don Rickles, Orson Welles. So if your grandparents uh, uh, need anything for. Uh, their birthday or yeah. Grandparents' Day. I'm go. telling you. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, the Vault series. Just tell them it includes the commercials and they'll be happy. That's I, it. I, I, these things are great. It's from uh, the good folks at Time Life. And uh, some stuff from Acorn. Uh, if you've been wondering what happened to Tandy Newton, because she is an amazing oh. actress, right? Oh, no, no, Ever no, 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 no. That shot at Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. When Tandy Newton cho- is driving in the yeah. fancy car. Yeah. Oh. I'm telling you, when she's rescued underneath the car by Matt Dillon in uh, Crash, a movie which everyone likes to malign, that's still one of the best scenes in a best picture in uh, the last 20 years. So if you've been wondering what Tandy Newton's been doing, she's been on Line of Duty, Series 4 in the UK. Uh, This is a really terrific, tough uh, police drama from the UK. Great acting. Tandy Newton just absolutely kills it. Uh, Jason Watkins is another one of the great members of the cast. Uh, it's just, you know what? I mean, really tough stuff. And, and coming on the heels, as it, as it is, of, uh, of another subway bombing in London, which is on the line that I've traveled in the past, and that was very upsetting. Um, it's tough to talk about cop shows in the UK because they all sort of, you know, when something real happens, you, you look at the fictional cop shows and you, you kind of have to compare them. But 
somehow they, you know, this one really stands apart these days. Line of Duty Series 4, terrific show, also stars, uh, it stars Tanny Newton, Vicki McClure, and Martin Compston. Really terrific show. Anything related to the English legal system or uh, derivatives thereof is great. And Janet King, Series 3, Playing Adventure, uh, the Australian series, which basically the Australian legal system is the British legal system pretty much. Uh, this is a terrific show. Uh, she plays a senior crown prosecutor. And uh, it is, uh, you know, everything here kind of dovetails from uh, a suicide and uh, goes into some really interesting uh interesting social tentacles throughout Australian society. Uh, I, I, I really enjoy this show. I think it's, uh, it's very well written, and uh, anything that takes me down under I always enjoy, even if it's the, the ugly side of down under. And then series one of The Heart Guy, also from Acorn TV, is, uh, is from the people who did Jack Irish and Rake, and uh, it stars Roger Corser as a heart surgeon who is so much better than anybody on Grey's Anatomy. It's unbelievable. Uh, all takes place at a uh, at a uh, really really kind of down and out hospital, and it's mostly the usual stuff that you get from uh, from medical shows. Except it's you know not an American medical show. It takes place in Sydney, and uh, it's got all that cool Australian stuff. So uh, again, anything that takes me down under is awesome. Uh, oh, hello, hi. There we go. Mark's Mark Mark's going to check out with us. We're doing a podcast. Say hello. There we go. Okay, okay, we got a hello. We got a hello. We got, we got a heartbeat. <laughs> All right. All right, well, while Mark then takes, uh, takes leave for a moment, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, break his heart, and I'm going to talk about anime, because I know he always loves to be around when we cover anime. So uh, I'm going to solo for a moment while Mark talks to his, uh, his future better half. Uh, we have a whole bunch of really interesting anime this week. Uh, it's starting to get into kind of golden season with the anime. Uh, Year-end, all of the really cool anime box sets and special editions come out. And so we're, we're starting to get there. Uh, from, uh, from Aniplex, which is a new company for us. They have been uh, one of the top uh, distributors of Blu-rays and DVDs in Japan and the U.S. for many years. And we've never covered Aniplex before, but we are now covering Aniplex releases. They've sent us a Cultic 9 uh, Occultic 9 started as a book and then became a video game and then became a, a television series. This is the first season, the first series, uh, using all the same voice characters from the video game. And it's, a really, it's really well animated and it's a really interesting kind of a, a mystery idea about a blog that deals with occult happenings around Japan and nine people who all subscribe to the blog, whose lives are interconnected as a result. And then things happen, and I won't tell you any of the things that happen because that's the whole substance of it. But uh, what a really, really fascinating series, incredibly well-conceived. And uh, beware, this is likely to become a live-action adaptation of some kind at some point. This is, just seems ripe and primed for it. We also have uh, a terrific boxed set a really great special, uh, special edition set of Fruits Basket, which is, on the one hand, very much uh, tied in with the usual uh, high school motif that we get in, in a lot of anime, including what we uh, Occultic Nine, which we just uh, talked about. Um, but on the other hand, it, uh, it, it's got family aspects to it that uh, kind of set it apart. Um, so uh, a little bit tough to kind of uh, give all, explain all the details of Fruits Basket. 
If you're a fan of the original manga that it's based on, there are differences, apparently, based on what I was reading. But uh, the general idea is you have a girl who uh, goes to live with her grandfather, and uh, then it gets into a kind of a dark, shadowsy area where there's a family curse that turns people into uh, animals from the Zodiac and all kinds of other weird little supernatural ins and outs that sort of uh, further entangle and complicate this family dynamic, which is already very complicated. So, uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful set. This is the uh, Sweet 16 Anniversary Edition of Fruits Basket. Lots of great extras here for, uh, for fans. And uh, again, you know, a very uh, innovatively animated show. Primarily a, uh, an animation house. Uh, Funimation also will release uh, live action stuff every once in a while. And uh, we get the reboot of the Godzilla franchise from them, not quite the Hollywood way, Shin Godzilla in a Blu-ray, DVD, and ultraviolet combo set. And uh, I, I, you know, new, new era Godzilla ever since the Roland Emmerich film hasn't really worked for me, not in Japan, not here. This is more faithful, obviously, to the original, uh, the original Japanese approach to it. Uh, this is from the people who did Evangelion, and so it has, you know, has anime, has anime aesthetics. Uh, but it's still, it's a Godzilla movie, and you get it on with ultraviolet, and that's about it. Uh, there's really otherwise nothing that really distinguishes it, but it, 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 it at least is more faithful to the Japanese uh, Godzilla than it is to the, the American variation of it. So that's something to uh, add to your list as well. And uh, let's see, really quickly, uh, just to give you mention that these are out, um, Matoi 9, The Sacred Slayer, uh, this is 12 episodes plus OVA. The uh, OVA episode is not originally shown on television. Complete collection. That's another one of these uh, kind of cute uh, mythological girl things. Uh, in the same vein is Chiha, Chihaya Furu. Chihaya Furu, season one. Uh, 25 episodes. That's uh, also from Sente. Still from Sente is Tamako, Love Story. Uh, which I was able to watch quite a bit of, and this is very, very sweet. Um, more of the, the usual teenage politics that you get in a lot of these uh, Japanese high school things, but actually done without, uh, without sort of excessive supernatural or thriller qualities. This is really, uh, this is really very sweet and well-written and uh, kind of uh, doesn't take uh, its audience for granted. So that's kind of nice. Tamako Love Story, Blu-ray DVD combo set. And then uh, we get more Gundam stuff. Uh, there's always Gundam stuff coming out from uh, Sunrise line over at Right Stuff. This is Mobile Suit Gundam Zeta, a new translation. Um, you still have to be part of the, the Gundam universe. You still have to be a little bit well-versed on all the ins and outs of the Universal Century and uh, know all the different factions to, to make sense of this. If you don't, you're going to be completely lost. If you kind of are a little bit up on it, this takes place in Universal Century 0087, and uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the Titans are growing very, very restless and difficult, and uh, that's where the conflict here begins. And, of course, you know, now we... Uh, then there's a stolen Gundam Mark II suit, and uh, you know a lot of real, a lot of fun action and adventure related to that. Mobile Suit Gundam Zeta, a new translation from Sunrise over at Right Stuff. And uh, last couple on the anime front before we then will launch into our uh, final interview segment uh, is uh, Endride Part Two and Rainbow Days: The Complete Series. 
both of these are very good and have almost identical animation. Uh, it's a little bit strange, but uh, you know, they, a lot of these animators cross over, and there's no indication that there's any great crossover between these two, but I'm sure there's some inspiration from one to the other. Uh, both of these are from Funimation. Uh, the, uh, the end ride part two is much more in the mythical realm. Uh, this takes place in kind of a mysterious other world uh, and, uh, you know, again, deals with high school students and their mystical adventures. Let's just say it feels a lot like uh, Never Ending Story and Wizard of Oz done anime style. And then Rainbow Days is uh, more down-to-earth, about a group of friends and, uh, and their very down-to-earth adventures. No, uh, no supernatural stuff, per se, here. Uh, but, uh, you know, similar, similar style of animation, uh, similar characterization, and uh, pretty, pretty enjoyable, I guess, if you, uh, it, you know, if you can't... It's the male, the male end of all of the, uh, the teen politics, the teen school, high school politics that you get in a lot of Japanese animation. So, End Ride Part 2, DVD and Blu-ray combo set, and uh, Rainbow Days, the complete series, also a Blu-ray DVD combo set. And with that, we're going to be uh, without Mark at the end of the show, so wish Mark well as he carries on his, uh, his trans-global conversation. We are now going to have a, uh, an interview with David Bossert, who wrote Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney Cartoons, which is an absolutely terrific book, wonderful coffee table book about the original character that started it all. Here we are with Dave Bossert. We are today speaking with David Bossert, who is the author of the amazing new book, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney Cartoons. Uh, this is from Disney Publishing, and uh, it is absolutely a wonderful, wonderful book for anybody who uh, has, has, for example, as we often do, goes to uh, Disney's California Adventure, and the second you walk through there, you're greeted not by Mickey Mouse, not by Minnie, not by Donald Duck, but... That, that little gas station right on the, uh, the left side is just loaded with Oswald uh, memorabilia to sort of remind you that Oswald is where the Disney legacy really, really begins. Could you give us just a thumbnail on why Oswald is so important? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I've been sort of using a little play off of a quote that Walt once said. Walt Disney once said, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it all started with a mouse, but I'd like to say it really started with a rabbit. And uh, this was really Walt's first big success, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. But the big issue was that he did not own the character. His producer and Universal owned the rights to the character. So when they pulled the contract from Walt, he had nothing. He didn't own the character. He didn't have more uh, animation to do with Oswald. And so it forced him to create Mickey Mouse. And I think it's a really compelling story from the standpoint that he was dealt a, a devastating setback when he lost the contract to Oswald. And instead of, you know, sulking over it, he stepped forward and he and his top animator, Ub Iwerks, who remained loyal to him, uh, they, they designed and created Mickey Mouse. It's, it's just, uh, you know, it's one of those classic stories that we often hear where uh, you, you have to have a great loss or a great defeat in order to then turn around and turn the next step into a great triumph. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor for life, and the, the, the book is just so tremendous. Um, you know, you talk about the origins and reacquiring the rights, 
the the preservation uh the, the you know it's 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 quite extraordinary talk about how oswald came back into the disney fold well really you know you have to give credit to uh bob Iger, the ceo of disney and diane uh disney miller uh walt's daughter um uh they were the really the the heroes here who who stepped up and and helped to repatriate those original 26 Oswald cartoons that Walt Disney and his team of artists at the Hyperion Studio created back in the 1920s and uh thanks to them getting those back really helps to fill in a couple of year uh, uh span of the Walt Disney Company history Oh, it, it's it's tremendous, and there are Oswald shorts that are lost. You talk about them extensively in the book. Um, we have surviving sketches and artwork and and other aspects of them, but otherwise, they're completely gone. We 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 don't we we have no way of recovering them unless they turn up in someone's basement somewhere. Is that it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, when when the company first uh, acquired the rights to these twenty six back uh, to Disney. Um, there was only, I believe, six or seven actual uh, film prints of uh, some of the Oswald cartoons. And then they were able to gather another six or seven for a total of 13, that they actually had film prints of 13 of the 26 titles. That meant 13 titles were missing or lost to time. And uh, when I got involved with it, I helped to uh, locate, along with David Gerstein, uh, who's a friend and colleague, uh, we we actually tr- uh, located an additional six titles that had been lost, and uh, we we found those scattered around the world. And uh, there's still seven titles missing, although I will tease everybody and say we've actually found one of those seven. We've located it. We don't have a copy of it yet, but we've located it, which is very exciting. Wow, that's tremendous. And, and you know, one of the things that is also interesting to me is um, how involved Frizz Frailing was in animating these. And, and I, I started to think, is there a little bit of Oswald that found its way into Bugs Bunny as well? You know, I, I I would not argue that point because when you look at uh, the early animation, whether it's Oswald or the early Mickeys, the black and white Mickey Mouses, or Felix the Cat, um, uh, Crazy Cat were some of those popular animated shows in the tw- uh, 20s and early 30s. Um, those really have some wonderful aspects to them as far as how the animation uh, was utilized, and they really took advantage of being able to dismember cartoon char- ca- uh, characters and put them back together. Um, uh, you know, uh, distort their shapes, really stretch limbs, and do really kind of fun things. And I think you see a lot of that uh, in some of those later Warner Brother cartoons, where they really uh, go wild. And uh, Tex Avery comes to mind with the, sure. the wild Tex Avery takes uh, jaws drop dropping to the ground and eyes popping out of the head and all of those types of things. And that's really what makes the medium of animation so much fun. If if we had to, well, if we had to describe for someone who's never seen an Oswald cartoon, how would you, I mean, we all, you know, Mickey Mouse is, is easy to describe, you know, Bugs Bunny, Droopy, these these iconic figures. How would you, how would you characterize Oswald for someone who's never been exposed? 
Well, as far as the, the describing how Oswald looks, Oswald, uh, his construction is very much like the early uh, Mickey Mouse. Um, he, he's constructed with circular uh, shapes. And uh, if you were to take an early Mickey Mouse and the Oswald and put them side by side, uh, you're essentially just squashing down Oswald's ears into, instead of elongated shapes, into round shapes. Uh, they're both wearing pants. Uh, but I think with Oswald, he's a little bit more um, uh, mischievous mischievous uh he's a little bit wilder um he does i think some wilder things than uh mickey did um in his later cartoons if you look at those early mickey mouse cartoons there's a lot of gags and things in there that are similar to what was in some of those early oswald cartoons and how how central was the switch from sound from silent to sound from the silence to the talkies uh at this time because you know when we think of something like Snow White for example Snow White is is a a legendary film of the sound era it's very much a sound film with the songs and the and the sound mix and the sound effects um but in in 1927-28 we are we're in a very very different technological moment how does that impact or find its way in the animation well i think that you know you have to recognize that walt was always a forward looking individual and and that was became very evident throughout his career and how he built the walt disney company and the Disneyland Park and all of these things, he never liked to repeat himself. So, you know, here you've got this guy who, who, who gets dealt this, you know, devastating loss. He loses the contract to Oswald. He sets out to create Mickey Mouse, and he absolutely grabs on to this new technology, synchronized sound, and puts it to one of those first three uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons. And when Steamboat Willie premiered with the sound to it. It was it, it brought the house down, and yes. it was a huge success for him. And ultimately, Mickey quickly eclipsed uh, the pop uh, the other popular animated characters of the day, including Oswald. Um, and Oswald eventually disappeared from the screens by 1938. Yeah. So, um, you know, I sit there and and look at uh, the fact that when you add synchronized sound to an animated film, uh, what you're doing is really adding a supporting character in my mind. Uh, the, the music uh, and sound effects and those types of things really support the screen action in animation and really help make it a more immersive, enjoyable experience. You know, I, the thing that I, I saw, I've been looking at the book um, consistently for the, the past several days since they sent it to us, and uh, you have so many, so many um, photographs here of the, the actual sketches, and it's such a wonderful look into the mind of the animators. There's even, you know, I'm looking here on, on one page where there's a, there's, a, there's a sketch, and it's completely scribbled out, as though they just thought, no, that's not going to work at all. And uh, it, it's such an interesting peek inside of what was done before they had uh, tablets and computers, and it had to all be done by hand. The, the, conce the concept, the, ex the animation, the execution, the, the, the fine drawing, all of that. Um, 
how much of an effort was it on your part to just mine through all of this material and, and, and kind of go over it? It just seems like there's a tremendous amount of material here. Yeah, and you know this uh, this type of undertaking for this the, this sort of uh, book is really a team effort, and and you really you you know as as the author, I'm not sitting in a room by myself, and I come out two years later with a manuscript. It really it, it revolved around uh, reaching out to a lot of different people. Uh, there was material at the Walt Disney Archives. There was animation drawings that survived, uh, including uh, animation for some of the missing cartoons that's at the Animation Research Library uh, at Disney. There's um, uh, there was uh, posters at auction houses. There were collectors that had material. There was some material up at the Walt Disney Family Museum in the Bay Area. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, material sort of scattered around, and it was really about trying to bring all of that material together and aggregate it into this one book, because this is really the only volume there is on Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And it's it's we wanted it to be as extensive as uh, we could make it, and also put as much in the way of visuals into it as we could. And in fact, there's some examples where we'll have a story sketch page on one side, and then we have matching film frames on the other side of the yeah. page. Uh, and you can see how you know the story sketch translated to the actual animation and that really speaks to how the whole process uh, of creating these films worked and you have to also understand that they were doing story sketch pages in the 1920s they hadn't really developed the storyboarding process that we know of today right uh, where you're using you know sort of five by seven sheets of paper or now you know they're using a Cintiq tablet uh, but essentially doing the same sort of aspect ratio drawings uh, that go up on a, uh, onto a board or are projected now onto a wall. And, um, you know, that process, that whole storyboarding process was developed at the Disney Studios in, uh, in the early 1930s. It's 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 tremendous. I mean, you really do feel in look going through the book, especially if you, you know, if anyone who has the 2007 DVD of Oswald Shorts, you you can watch those, and then you can come to this book, and you're suddenly filled with a much richer appreciation for the effort that went into it. When you realize exactly what you just said, which is that they're kind of inventing the animation process from scratch in many respects. There isn't. And, and unless I'm wrong, I mean, there's pretty prior to Oswald, you've got Windsor McKay, maybe some Felix the Cat, but uh, that there, there isn't much by way of mainstream animation that, that the process is drawing on, is there? Well, you know, the biggest competitor for Disney in the 1920s was uh, essentially the Fleischer Studios sure. and Pat Sullivan Studios, who were doing the Felix the Cat cartoons. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, if you look at the Fleischer Studios, they were doing um, Out of the Inkwell series with Coco. Oh, that's right. Brown. And, right. and and their premise was they were taking a cartoon character and putting uh, the cartoon character in the live action world, and Walt sort of did a twist on that, and he wanted to put a live character Alice into an animated world, and and so that's that was sort of differentiated his series, the Alice comedy series, from from the um, uh, out of the inkwell Coco the Clown uh, stuff that uh, Fleischer was doing. 
so, but the whole industry itself was was a fledgling industry. They were all inventing it, and they were coming up with ways of doing things. You know, it's interesting that you know later on Disney would develop the multiplane camera, uh, and the Fleischer brothers had a similar type of thing, but they they had a a horizontal camera that they hung animation uh, against glass, and behind the glass they had 3D sets. Uh, so everybody was experimenting. I think it was a very exciting time in the animation industry because they were all figuring it out. They were all coming up with new ways of doing things and creating visual images that you know, uh, sort of struck people as, gee, how did they do that? Um, and so it was a lot of fun being able to dig into some of that. You know, one of the other things that we, we were able to put into the book were some of the surviving Western Union telegrams between Walt and his producer, Charles Mintz. Right. And, and there's, there's one example of a telegram he gets from Mintz who's, you know, not very happy with uh, the poor papa uh, and you know he's kind of critical of the first uh, Oswald cartoon that they created, and the back side of that uh, telegram, uh, Walt had written in pencil his response back to uh, to Mintz, which uh, which is you know just these are historical artifacts that are just really wonderful to to be able to look at. It's 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 just really it's a tremendous book and it's a wonderful companion especially for for anyone who already has the DVD. Uh, it's just it's it's so wonderful. Last question then before I let you go: If you had to pick one or two favorite Oswald shorts that just really resonate with you and define that moment, define the character that just are so representative, uh, what would those be? You know, for me, I immediately, as you were asking that question, I flashed on Trolley Troubles, which was really the first, it was the second Oswald cartoon they created, but it was the first one that was released to the public, and it was an instant success. And it's just a very funny, fresh uh, cartoon, uh, as far as I'm concerned. There's a wonderful gag in there where the trolley is out of control. It's, it's you know, uh, racing down a hill. And Oswald is uh, sitting there praying. And then at one point he pulls his foot off. And he kisses his foot and he rubs it on his head, the lucky rabbit's foot. He rubs on his head and then he puts it back on his leg. And it's just, every time I see it, I just laugh when I, uh, when I view that. It's a funny gag and it's representative of that anything goes kind of animation. You can make a character do anything. You can bring in props from no place and lose props uh, when you're done with them. It's just uh, really uh, hilarious and fun uh, animation to watch. David Bossert, thank you so much for speaking with us today. The book is Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney Cartoons from Disney Publishing. It is, uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful book, and I cannot recommend it uh, highly enough. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bet. you. Okay, bye-bye. And that is it for our week. We will uh, be back next week. Keep your fingers crossed. Let's see if Mark is still with us. We'll see you then.